0: Good morning, if you would, grab a Bible. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis 11, that's where we'll be centering our time of study this morning, Genesis 11. It's good to see you this morning. Glad that we can be out and together. Appreciate those who are joining us in the different formats that we have, and we're thankful for the interest in spiritual things that's brought us together today. I have noticed that um, some of our younger ones are a little thrown off by the change in time. So just know I have prepared an extra long sermon just for that purpose. I am just kidding. Nobody needs to leave right now uh, in fear of the extra long sermon. Uh, You might also notice that um, the entire Hudgens family is a different shade of red this morning because we spent the day digging out our street up our hill. We got all the way to the top and uh, somehow there's snow reflecting and uh, different parts of us. Anyway, we all got severely sunburned. I hope that Uh, Everything will be okay, but I hope that you can put up with that as you have to stare at my face for a few minutes this morning. Not hours, just minutes. All right, uh, Genesis 11, let's begin by reading here. The text says, now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. For years, this story has puzzled me. It's a rather simple story. Man, while still mostly together after the flood, decides we're going to build a city and a tower, and God, in frustration, confuses their language so that they can't continue, and they are eventually scattered. When I was a child, uh, someone told me, and I I also think it's possible I imagined this. uh, Someone told me, though, in my memory, that the people were trying to build a tower up to God. And that God was worried they were a little too close. And so God came down and said, you know what, we can't have that. And so he dispersed them uh, by confusing their language. On one level, this story is pretty simple. It explains the origin of languages. It explains how people end up in different lands with different ethnicities and things like that. But what has most puzzled me about this story is just why is it here? What is it intended to teach? And as I thought about it and dug into it this week, what I found is that this story is surprisingly relevant. God is correcting something when he scatters the people and confuses their language He is correcting something that is still a problem in 2021, and I want us to learn about that. Sometimes people argue that the Bible is outdated and irrelevant. It's a relic of a bygone age, and I want to show you this morning that that is not true at all, that one of the earliest stories in Scripture is in fact one that we need to hear from the most. So what we're going to call this, and you can see a little bit of where we are headed, is the idea of Babel and hubris and human solutions. So I want us to dig in for a minute into this story. Let's go back a page to Genesis 9 and set our feet here. In Genesis 9, after the flood, it says in Genesis 9, 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then down in Genesis 9 and verse 7, he says, and you be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. So God wants man to spread out. Remember, at this point, there are only eight people. And so he says, I want you to multiply and fill the earth. Now that term, fill the earth, it has two different meanings in English. It could mean spread out and fill up all the space, or it could just mean make more of yourselves so that the earth becomes full of people. Either way, uh, it seems to me that the, the will of God is expressed in the idea of being fruitful. But... What that means is uh, some people read the story of Babel as a direct disobedience to the command, fill the earth. That God is saying you need to spread out and they refuse to spread out. I'm not sure about that as we'll see and I'll talk about more in a minute. But what we do find is that as the number, number of peoples grow, the families become different peoples and then begin to spread out. Look in chapter 10 of Genesis. In chapter 10 and verse 5. It says, from these, the coastland people spread in their lands, each with his own language by their, coast, by their clans in their nations. Verse 10, Genesis 10, 10. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. Notice Babel in the land of Shinar, as we'll talk about in a moment. Verse 19. And the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar, as far as Gaza, in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adam, and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. And then down in verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah according to their genealogies in their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. So you see, we're describing in chapter 10, the table of nations, how different nations are formed and where they're all going. But what we don't understand is why. Why do they start spreading out? Maybe there's some bad blood after the events of chapter nine. Remember Noah gets drunk and one of his sons, Ham, sees his nakedness. The other brothers are upset. Noah is upset and curses Ham and curses his children. Maybe that's part of it, or maybe there's something to do with what happens in chapter 11. So, chapter 11 is the answer to why the peoples spread. So, let's begin just by reading the first four verses here of chapter 11. Now, the whole earth had one language... And the same words, and as people migrated from the east, they found a plain of the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So the idea here is a proposal, a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, Some of the people as they're traveling east settle in the plain of Shinar and they begin to use the building materials for different purposes than just building things that are essential. That's really the transition here. Of course, it's understandable that people want to build homes. Maybe people want to build places where people will need to come and do things. But what happens here is there is a transition away from doing things we need to doing something we don't have any need for. Let's build a tower with its top In the heavens. And the reason is very clear in verse 4 let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let's become great. Let's get famous. Let's build something we don't need. And of course, if you build a tower with its top in the heavens, at this point in time, it will be the wonder of the world, right? And you will be immortally famous. Everyone will always remember the people who build a tower. Into the top of the heavens. Part of the agenda in verse 4 is that the people are afraid lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. The appeal of the project is that we'll all be working together and moving towards something great. Instead of continuing to move around and kind of scratch out a living, we'll build a city, capital C, and we'll build a tower and we will become a people that is a little bit above everything and everyone else in both literal and and figurative ways. Now, as I mentioned, I'm not sure this is a direct violation of God's command to fill the earth. Because as I said, I think fill the earth can have different meanings. But I can say this. These people are not thinking about God at all. So remember, we're just a few years removed from the flood. Which occurs because man's thoughts are only on evil continually. But everybody on earth knows about God... Because everybody on earth is a descendant of Noah, who walked with God. Everybody knows the story of the flood, because everybody that's alive is a descendant of someone who survived the flood. And yet here we are with absolutely no thought about what God might want or think about the things that we're doing. So have we progressed at all? I'm not sure that we have. Have we learned anything? It does not appear so at this point in time. I put the word on the board here. Uh, the word hubris. Hubris is the idea that was famous particularly in Greek culture of someone who was unwilling to stay in their place. They wanted to reach beyond who they were and where they were to become something greater than they were. And there are tons of stories about hubris in the Greek mythology. The most famous and the one you probably are aware of is Icarus, whose father Daedalus made him wings so that he could fly... And he warned him, don't fly too low or else the wings can get wet and something can happen with the water. Don't fly too high or else, as inevitably happens, Icarus flies too close to the sun and the wax that holds his wings on melts and he crashes and drowns in the sea. And so we still have that picture, you know, that we we get a little too big for our britches and we try to go higher than our station is. And just as the Greek myths say, when you don't recognize your place, disaster ensues. This story reads like that, doesn't it? Here we are, we're people, but we kind of want to be higher than we are. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to become great. We want to build something that will last. And so we overreach and we cause disaster for ourselves. Man not being content with this place is behind Babel. Then you have this statement in the story of what we're going to call the divine disappointment. Look in verse 5. Genesis eleven five And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So they've evidently made considerable progress. It says in verse 5, the city that they have built. So in some ways, it is finished. But I love what one commentator said about verse 5. He said, The tower that they thought reached up to heaven, God can hardly see. God has to come down to see it. And as he comes down, he's, oh, let's see what you guys have done. Isn't that cute? You built a tower. Now, God coming down is, of course, a figure of speech. It's used later in Genesis 18. Remember, God comes down to see what's going on in Sodom. There's a great outcry. I've come down to see if it's really what I've heard it is. Of course, God already knows, and yet he is saying, I'm aware of what's happening on earth, and and sometimes I will even visit earth in a form. What it emphasizes is that God is infinitely greater than this great work of man. But I want you to notice verse 6. It says, The Lord said, Behold, they are one people, they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. This is only the beginning. God sees beyond the tower, and he looks at what it symbolizes. What starts here isn't going to end here. What begins as a tower will just progress, or we might say will just regress further and further away from my will for people. The tower is not the problem. The brazen spirit it represents is dangerous. He says in verse six, without intervention, he says, nothing that they propose to do now will be impossible for them. That if they're all able to understand each other all the time with the same language, their power will be so great That it will become a continual distraction for them from the stuff of life. Nothing they propose will be impossible for them. They will forget their place. I label this the divine disappointment. I don't believe that God is threatened by this. I believe he is disappointed. And I believe behind that is just the simple idea God is saying, That's not why I made you. I did not make man. So that he could make crazy, awesome projects. That's not the goal of life. And so he says, this is only the beginning. Things are going sideways in my creation. For some help with this, I want you to look back with me in Genesis chapter 3. A very similar passage. Leave your marker or your finger here. We'll come back to Genesis 11. But let's go back to Genesis 3. So in Genesis 3, it's a similar problem where Adam and Eve have eaten of the fruit. And God had forbidden them from eating of this fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And after they eat of the fruit, God says this, Genesis 3, verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So this is one of those statements. It's similar to this is only the beginning of what they'll do. God looks forward. So here in in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit specifically to be like God. Remember, that's what the serpent says. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. If that is their impulse, which by the way, that is the universal impulse of man. We want to be God. We want no one to tell us what to do. We want to do whatever we want. We, have, we want complete freedom and no one to check it. That is what Adam and Eve wanted. So they took the fruit and they ate it. And God says, look, if they've started down this path, you know what comes next. Now they want to live forever. They want to eat from the tree of life. They're, they're going to continue down this path. It is not that God is threatened. Oh, no, what's gonna, we're going to have a bunch of little gods running around. It's that God says, this is not what I want. This is not good for them. This is not man's place, role, or purpose. So God forcibly limits man. He says, you're not going to have access to that anymore. He says, I'm going to push you in the direction I intended you to go when I made you. Out of the garden, off the tower, back into the things that are going to be my will for you. When you go back to Genesis 11, you see the clash in man and God in terms of priorities, by what they're afraid of, or at least what they're concerned about. You Remember what man's afraid of? Lest we be dispersed over the face of the earth. But what is God afraid of? What is God concerned about? He is concerned that this is only the beginning and nothing they propose will be beyond them. So God manages his creation. He gives us freedom. And yet there are also things he says, no, you're not going to be able to go this far. I'm cutting that avenue off for you so that you will end up fulfilling the will I have for you and for the world as I made it. The third thing I want you to see in the story is the result. The Lord dispersed them. Read with me in verse 7. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So this is an ingenious solution because this is not a judgment like the flood where God comes and, and he kills people or harms people. Instead, He introduces the idea of languages, which, by the way, I don't think they had any clue what a language was before this. But now, all of a sudden, when you don't understand the person who's speaking to you, we understand, okay, well, there must be something else going on. But without communication, there's no hope for this building to continue. There's no hope for them to live together in peace. And so, all of a sudden, we're we're just naturally dispersing into our own groups with people that we understand. So, verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. So they leave the city. In fact, it says the Lord dispersed them, which is a a way of saying God didn't do anything directly to disperse them. He confused their language, and the people naturally dispersed. The place is called Babel. We still have a word in English. That is Babel, which means to speak unintelligible things, that comes from this. But this is also, geographically and etymologically, the same idea as Babylon. Same area of Babylon. And in fact, one of the roots that is the same as the root for Babylon. Babylon is the everlasting symbol of empire in Scripture. It is the symbol of pride and godlessness. That's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God doesn't want his people to stay in Babylon. He wants them to move out, take up their own places and their own languages and their own cultures. And only after the people have been dispersed does God begin to work out his plan. You know, it's Genesis 12 where God calls Abram. And do you remember what God says to Abram? He says, I will make your name great. So let us make a name for ourselves is not the way it's going to work. Instead, it's going to be God making our name great. So what do we do with this story? I want to show the importance of this story by just giving three questions. These questions are going to be by way of application and thinking through what this might mean for you and me today. What I see in the story first is what are the dangers and limits of human solutions? There is an all-out commitment in this story, that if we have a problem, we can lean on each other and ourselves to fix the problem. These people have a fear, lest we be dispersed over the face of all the earth. They have a desire, let us make a name for ourselves. And they think the fear and the desire can be met and fulfilled by them all getting together and doing something great. And so they choose human solutions, they choose technology, they choose human effort And behind all of this is the dream of utopia. That if we work hard enough and we're committed together, we can make a society that is perfect. It's what everybody wants. Everyone is happy all the time. And that dream lives on. The way we get there is by us. We're the answer. And if we work hard enough and we're all agreed, then we can make it happen. We can be the solution to our own problems. Well, here's the good news about that. We have the benefit of a lot more human history than these people had, right? Maybe we can see how that idea has played out throughout history since they lived. And the track record, let's just say, is not good. How do we do in solving our own problems? Especially, how do we do with how technology is used and relied on to solve problems that, that we cause? We have now, as humanity, gone through Several technological revolutions. In fact, most of the people in this room have lived through more than one technological revolution. Where have those things gotten us? Have they solved our fundamental problems to have different and better technologies? We now have access to most of the knowledge humanity has ever produced. We usually have it at the touch of a button. You say a word and access knowledge. We also have the ability to communicate with anyone, anywhere on the globe, in an instant. So why aren't we any closer to utopia? What's the problem? I mean, if anything should get us there, it should be the level of technology we live at right now, right? Maybe the problem is that, that we're not really the answer. In this way, very often we picture... Humanity and our technology, like the Tower of Babel, you know, you've got the, the older generations and, and they lay they layer down and then the next generation comes and we build on it, we build on it, we build on it and higher and higher it goes. Where does it get us to? What can we say has been achieved? What solutions have really been provided? Think about the internet. The internet is a wonderful blessing in some ways. In some ways, the Internet helps us in things like studying the Bible and communicating with people who want to study the Bible, helping people to know more about Jesus. But we also know the, the bad side, the dark side of the Internet, right? Let's just be honest about it. The Internet is most of the time a sewer. We talk about pornography. We could talk about terrorism and how terroristic groups recruit through the Internet. The proliferation of misinformation. Social media can be good, but social media can also just accelerate hatred between groups and between people. What about those cell phones that we live with? Smartphones. They're supposed to make us more efficient. They're supposed to make our lives better. But instead of having twice as much time, we usually just feel twice as anxious. Busy without accomplishing things. And with a constant addictive need to look at it over and over and over again. Is it making things better? Is it answering anything? Just like every other time of great progress, what we do is we leap into the progress without considering the implications, the toll it takes on the soul. And so we're back at Babel. Come, let's make a name for ourselves. Just like other times of great progress... We don't think about the dark side. So we use technology to create more efficient ways to kill people. Weapons of mass destruction. Or we use technology to replace people. You know, the more automated a system becomes, the cheaper a business can run. So people are just sort of outsourced. Or we just worry about making money instead of helping people. And everything is given up in the quest for the next dollar. And somewhere, can you hear it? Somewhere in the background of all of this is God's voice. This is only the beginning of what they will do. God's saying, this whole train, I tried to stop. This is all going back to Babel. And then in those moments where we see that, and we see, you know what, there are dangers and there are limits to what people can do. Do you know what we seek? We seek human answers to those problems. And we say, you know, if we could just get the right guy in office, he would answer it all. He could fix it. And you know, if we got, oh, well, we got the wrong guy. That's the problem. And we'll get the new guy. And then what happens? We get the new guy in and he's not the answer either. And so we go to the next new guy and the next new guy. Because humans, we say, they've got to be the answer. Somebody will save us. Politicians will save us or medicine will save us or experts will save us or entertainment will save us. Something someone has created can come and save us. Please don't take any of this. To me be saying that technology is bad. I'm just saying it's not the answer to our problems. It's merely a tool. And we need to acknowledge that there are some problems that there are no human solutions for. There are some forces we can't control. There are some situations we can't handle. I think we've experienced that this last week, right? I mean, you can, you can have things that will tell you this terrible storm is coming, but there, what can you do? What can we do in the face of a storm? We have no power in some situations. And that's not science's fault. And that's not government's fault. No one is at fault. There are forces that are beyond human control. That points us back to God. It helps us to see that human solutions are not really the answer. They may help us in some small ways, but the core concerns of our lives, the purpose of our lives, will never be answered by other people. Other people have dangers and limits. So all of these things, what they should do is lead us to look up and remind us that we have a tendency that instead of looking up, we really would rather look around at each other or look inside and ourselves. But we need to remember from the story of Babel that there are dangers and limits to that. The second question is, what is God's will for my life? I want you to go with me to Acts chapter 17 for a moment. Acts 17. Paul talks a little bit about Babel in Acts 17, or at least It's behind the scenes in what he is saying. The question Babel raises is, what's our purpose? Are we here to make a name for ourselves? Or are we here to accomplish the will of our creator? Which one is it? Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Some of what Paul is describing here is Babel itself. Did you notice that? The determination of allotted periods and the times of their dwellings and the boundaries of their dwellings. He also talks about the idea in verse 25. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is the source. God is the creator. And so there is a natural need we have to think about what is God's will. And so he comes to that in verse 27. He says, the purpose of all this is that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So we can seek a name for ourselves or we can seek the Lord. One of those is our purpose. One of those will leave us fulfilled. The other will leave us ultimately unfulfilled. In Luke 1, verse 74, this is a Zechariah's song after John the Baptist is born. He says, That we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. He talks about how the whole plan that God has put in motion is about reaching a point where God can defeat our enemies so that we can finally do what we were made to do serve him without fear. Somewhere along the way, in all our busyness and all our ambition, or perhaps in our pursuit of our own pleasure and our own happiness, the thought is lost. What is life really about? What are we supposed to be doing? Who are we? What's the point? And we can basically answer that in one of two ways. Either life is just about us, It's about me finding fulfillment and purpose and meaning and everything I want, or me finding pleasure. Or it's about God, honoring him as his creatures so that we live consistent with our purpose and we bring honor and glory to him. We're all familiar with what we want, right? We already know that. The question here is, what is God's will for my life? And I believe Babel teaches us That when we don't live according to our created purpose, we make a mess of life. Things go sideways. It doesn't work. It's ultimately shallow and unfulfilling. The third question I want to ask is how is the church the anti Babel? What was done at Babel, the scattering and the confusion of languages, is undone. At Pentecost, where nations suddenly are regathered and suddenly language is no longer a barrier. Changes are made and God undoes that scattering. Instead of Babel, where people are united by a foolish, pointless purpose. Let's build a tower into the heavens. In the church, we are united for the greatest purpose. In Babel, where it was about making a name for ourselves, in the church, it's about making a name for God and glorifying the name we wear. In the church, it's not about impressing people. And that's why it's vital, by the way, that we never compete with other Christians. We don't make the church about us. I'm better than you. I'm different from you. I'm here to make a name for my group. I'm here to make a name for myself. Because our goal is not to make a name for ourselves. It's to make a name for our Savior. In the church, God has gathered together people from every nation and language to be one, to be unified, to serve him together. There is a purpose that truly unites us. And so the church becomes something bigger and deeper than what man could create. So when we think about Babel, we need to think that the church is its exact opposite, that what we are doing now is no longer about us. So we value that incredible thing God continues to do through his people, but we must also never make it about us. So I hope these questions will help you. I believe that Babel is a remarkably relevant story. The question is, how will we let it change us? What kind of difference will we make? How will we think about our world differently and ourselves and our technology and other people? What will we do with the role God has given us? Are we going to reach beyond who we are and what God made us to be and be guilty of that hubris? Are we going to look at people as the answer or will we look to God? And I especially want to dwell on that for just a moment. There are problems in our lives that we can't fix. Haven't you faced that? You know, making a name for ourselves is great, but it's not going to help us when we get cancer or when our loved ones die, when we are gripped with tragedy that we can't deal with. It won't help us to say, well, I've got a name for myself. When we face our own mortality, there is only one who can help us. And he's not human. And it's important that we see that all of these needs are pushing us toward God. The question is, will we submit to that? Will we reach out to him? Will we put faith in him? Or will we continue to seek the answers in other people? That's the question Babel leaves us with. And that's the question I want to leave you with. If there is someone here this morning who is ready to make a change in their lives, whether to be a Christian and to be baptized into Christ, or whether to make something known to this group that we can help you with, please come to the front as we stand and sing to encourage you.